0: All right, gang, uh, we're going to start in 1 Samuel chapter 18, all right? In your Old Testament, the Bible begins with five books of law, and then those five, called the Pentateuch, they're followed by 12 books of history, the historical books. One of those early historical books is called First Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 18 in just a moment. Then we're going to wind up in James chapter 3, which is in the back of your Bible. Friendship, according to C.S. Lewis... Is completely and totally unnecessary. It's like philosophy or art. Friendship has no survival value. However, it's one of those things which gives value to our survival. I want to talk about friendship today because over the next few weeks, Tyler and I want to remind you of your place in God's process. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you believe this or not, but the Bible makes one thing very clear. God has a plan, and we're a part of that plan. Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God on many occasions. You and I are a part of that kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of God on earth at this moment and the coming kingdom of God that is in the future. When Jesus left his disciples, last thing he gave them is what we call the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world, and tell my story. Tell people about me. Well, guess what? That's not just for pastors and teachers. That's not just for missionaries or evangelists. That's for every follower of Jesus Christ. We're all a part of God's plan, and you have more influence than you realize, and that influence is like currency. You can spend that influence for good, or you can spend it for for bad. Today, I want to talk about the influence we have in our friendships, in our relationships. I am so very grateful for the friendships that I've developed and cultivated throughout my lifetime. If you have a short list, even, of quality friends, you are a blessed person indeed. Proverbs 18, verse 24 says, Some friends may ruin you, but a real friend will be more loyal than even a brother. That's the kind of relationship... That a man named Jonathan and David possessed in the Old Testament. Now you may know who David was. David as a young man brought down the mighty giant. David went on to become the greatest king that Israel has ever known. Even to this day in Israel, devout Jews revere the name of King David. But you may not know who Jonathan was. Jonathan was supposed to be king. Jonathan was the rightful heir to the throne because Jonathan was the firstborn son of the very first king of Israel, and that man's name was Saul. And despite these two men and their differences, they became the best of friends. Theirs is the greatest friendship recorded in your Bible, Jonathan and David. Jonathan was a prince. David was a shepherd. Jonathan had his own armor. David grew up with a harp and a slingshot. Jonathan grew up in the palace. He was trained in the art of war. David grew up in a little town called Bethlehem, and he was trained to be a shepherd. Jonathan was the oldest son, and he was set to inherit the throne. David was the youngest of eight sons, and yet he was the one who eventually did. Jonathan was of the tribe of Benjamin. David was the tribe of Judah. But these two men forged a friendship that is unlike any other recorded in Scripture. In chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, the first three verses give us a glimpse of that friendship. Read with me beginning of verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. That's close. That's tight. He loved David as himself. You see, a bond had formed. They had forged a friendship between Jonathan and David. They became the best of friends. Verse 2, from that day Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his home to his family. So at some point in David's life as he grew up, when he and Jonathan became this close, he moved into the royal palace. Verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Do you know what a covenant is? A covenant is an agreement. It's like a contract. Believe it or not, ours is a covenant relationship with God. You see, God's not in this relationship with us for what he can get out of it, and we shouldn't be either. God's in this relationship with us in a sacrificial way because a covenant relationship is a selfless relationship, not a self-centered relationship. Believe it or not, your marriage is supposed to be a covenant relationship. God expects husbands and wives not to live together to get, but to live together to give. David and Jonathan's relationship was a covenant relationship. In fact, if we were to go on and read verse 4, he gave him his robe. He gave him his sword. He gave him gifts to signify that covenant. And Jonathan was a mighty warrior himself. We all know about the exploits of David, or at least most of us probably do. But according to 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan was quite the soldier himself. Jonathan killed 20 Philistines all by himself, one against 20, and he brought them all down to the ground. Brothers in combat, I've been told. Brothers and sisters who lay their lives on the line for each other, they forge an incredible bond together. Jonathan saved David's life on one occasion. Eventually, Jonathan would die on the battlefield and it would be David who was responsible for his eulogy in the palace. That eulogy is contained in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26, David cried, Oh, my dear brother Jonathan, I am crushed by your death. Your friendship was a miracle wonder, love far exceeding anything I've ever known. Today, I want to try and show you and encourage you that we're being shaped by our relationships. You see, God is molding and shaping every one of us, and he's not simply using his word and the principles therein. He's not simply using circumstances. He's using relationships. He's using your marriage. He's using your friendships To mold and shape you into the people you are becoming. There are few influences. Let me say that a different way. There are few influencers that are more powerful in your life and mine than relationships and friendships. And in addition, the process works the other way as well. Not only am I being influenced because of my friendships, not only am I being influenced in my marriage, but I'm influencing others Someone who said, example is not the main thing in influencing others. It's the only thing. As I said at the outset, if you have even a handful of close, devoted, loving friends, you are a wealthy individual. Because friendship is a very powerful element in our lives. Think about it. It's only in friendships, only in close relationships, such as marriage, that we can drop our guard. We can let our hair down, so to speak. I can be myself with my closest friends. I can be myself with my wife, Amy. I don't have to act professional. I don't have to dress professional. I don't have to speak professionally. I don't even have to be polite if I don't want to be. I can be myself. Friendships mold. They shape us. They grow. They challenge us. Because we not only do life with other people, In other words, we not only experience life with other people, we in turn interpret life and circumstance with friends. Often our greatest victories happened with friends. We're with others. Sadly, some of our harshest defeats are also in the company of our friends. So you have influence, either positive or negative, you have influence on everyone around you. In one way or another, I am still being influenced by people in my past, maybe people I haven't seen in a very, very long time. I, I sat down in my office this week and got pretty depressed because I realized it's been about 40 years since I graduated high school. Man. Now, I know that's shocking to some of you because I look so young. 40 years since I graduated high school. It's been more than 50 years since I started grade school. And yet, I am the man I am today, largely in part, largely due to the relationships that were forged throughout that critical part of my life. I made a list. In the first grade, my teacher, Mrs. McDonald, taught me a valuable lesson. At Turkey Creek Elementary School in Central Florida, Mrs. McDonald taught me that my best buddy didn't have to be white. In second grade, at Yates Elementary School in Brandon, Florida, my second grade teacher, Mrs. McCray, taught me that consistent discipline comes from adults who love you. In third grade, at Kingswood Elementary, you notice three different elementary schools in the first three years, I kept getting thrown out, was the problem. <laughs> in third grade, at the Kingswood Elementary School, Mrs. Fluelling taught me to always tell the truth. I'm not sure I ever learned that lesson, but... She taught it to me anyway. In the fourth grade, Mrs. Deaver taught me never to back down from a challenge. And I remember that today. In the fifth grade, Mrs. Pfeiffer taught me to try new things because even square dancing can be fun. In the sixth grade, Mrs. Holman taught me you can't kiss the girls in the middle of class. In the seventh grade, Mr. Goldman taught me there's nothing cool about ignorance, young man. In the eighth grade, Mr. D'Amico taught me that it's okay not to fit in when fitting in is out of bounds. In ninth grade, Mr. Hill taught me how to be real, how to be authentic. In the 10th grade, Mr. Murdoch taught me the value of sincerity. In 11th grade, Coach Rustenberg, also my teacher, taught me that if I want to win, I've got to work harder than my opponent. And my senior year, Mr. Gear taught me how to be a leader. Those were 12 teachers who watched an awkward kid come through their ranks. They didn't make a lot of money. They probably wondered if any of their words, if any of their lessons were landing in my life. They probably went home several days considering resignation, and yet there were 12 men and women whose influence shaped my life. James was the half-brother of Jesus. If you want to go ahead and turn to James' chapter 3, do so. James knew something about forging relationships and building relationships. James understood in chapter 3, and he makes this clear, how important what we say becomes in our relationship. How we speak and communicate becomes in our friendships. You see, the bonds that are built in your friendship are forged through primarily two things. Experiences and words. One of the reasons we're close as a couple or we're close as buddies is because we've experienced things in life together. One of the reasons Amy and I are close in our marriage is because we live together and do life together. Those are experiences. However, what James chapter 3 focuses on and what I'd like to talk about today is the importance of our words. One of the reasons that I'm close, intimate with my wife is because of the words we exchange. Conversely, one of the reasons a couple may not be close is because of the words that they exchange. Read with me, beginning in verse 1 of James chapter 3. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now you can look at this one or two ways, or both really. James is either addressing people in the church who are quick to volunteer, yeah, I'll be a teacher, sign me up, I'll become an influencer, and James says, whoa, 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 think that through, or in a less official capacity, James is directing these comments to people who just love to give their opinion about everything. It's fun to be around somebody who always has an opinion about everything, isn't it? We tend to avoid those kind of people. I mean, you're having your own conversation. They're not even a part of it, but something you say sparks their interest, and boom, they've just got to throw in their two cents, right? James says, don't do that. Don't do that because influencers are going to be judged more strictly. Verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Interesting. According to James... It is so difficult to control what you say that if you can control your speech, you can control your whole body. If you can develop the self-discipline necessary to engage your brain before you engage your mouth, you can can do almost anything. Verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships for an example. Although they are so large, they're driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go, verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small, small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. My speech reveals what's important to me. Nobody likes to be around a blowhard either, right? Somebody who makes everything about themselves. How do they do that? what they say. Verse number six, or end of verse five, consider what a great forest is set on fire by only a small spark. Verse six, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil. Notice how dramatic this is getting. A world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Again, that's pretty dramatic, isn't it? But James is not employing hyperbole here just to get your attention. James is stating facts. James wants us to come to grips with the power of that seemingly harmless little muscle inside our mouths. Keep reading. Verse 7. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of of deadly poison. Now, most of you know that I have a beautiful Italian mastiff named Roxy. She weighs about 150 pounds. She is the most lovable, docile thing you've ever seen. But before we had Roxy, we had this dog. You are looking at a 225-pound English mastiff named Lazarus. If you're going to bring that animal into your home, you better know how to control it. Because that dog won't simply chew up the leg of your couch. That dog will destroy your entire couch, right? That dog won't simply dig a hole in your yard. That dog will dig a hole big enough to park a Volkswagen in it. Before you bring a dog like that into your house, you better know how to control it. Because it's powerful. When I'd play tug of war with that dog in my giant oversized easy chair, he would drag me and the chair all the way across the room. (laughs) One Easter, we had a spiral sliced ham. And when the family had finished eating, you know, you got that bone left over. It's got a knuckle on the end, and then it's been cut. You know, it's about, you know, yay long or so. Had a lot of ham bits left on it. I took it outside. I said, Lazarus, look what daddy's got. And he went to wagging his tail. And he sat down and I gave it to him. He took it so gently. He laid down in the grass, and before I could get back inside the house, I heard him crushing that big bone that was big around as my wrist. Crushing it. Of course, I had to take it away from him. I didn't want him to swallow a bone sliver. But that's the power of those jaws. Now, incidentally, it wasn't two or three weeks after that. We're watching television in our great room. We had the door open to the carport and we had a glass storm door. Lazarus is on the couch with my wife. I'm in my easy chair. And a bird flew into that glass, bam, and hit the carport. Well, I jumped up and opened the door. Before I could get out the door, Lazarus shot out there and scooped up that bird. And immediately, I snapped my fingers. I said, Lazarus, no, drop it. And with those eyebrows that are so expressive, he kind of looked up at me. And without taking his eyes off me, he bent down, and he opened his mouth, and that little bird hopped out and jumped across the grass. You don't bring an animal like that into your home unless you know how to control it. What James is trying to communicate here in this passage is your tongue is powerful. You ought not even use it if you don't know how to control it. All right, keep reading. Verse 9. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. With it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. I think that's one of the reasons the church is not as effective in our culture as she could be because we gather on Sundays and we praise our God, but then we use our speech through the week to tear one another down, and that's no good. In fact, it's inconceivable to James. Look what he says in verse 10. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Verse 11. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? I think not. Verse 12. My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? No. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Whether it's a misunderstanding or a lack of communication or whether it's a malicious attack, what James chapter 3 reminds us or warns us about is the fact that our verbiage is volatile. There is no greater... Tool in developing intimacy, close friendships, than our words. James says, Be careful when you choose them because our words are the primary influencer in our friendships, in our marriages. Look, in the little bit of counseling that I do in my position, if I can get a couple to change their words, to start saying it differently, to choose better words, more constructive words, more loving words, I can get them to change the way they communicate. And if we can get them to change the way they communicate, we can change the entire relationship dynamic. That's how powerful your words really are. James says in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, there are at least four reasons for this. Very quickly, let me give them to you. Number one, your words reveal your maturity. The words you use reveal your maturity. How grown up you really are. When you speak, everybody knows if you're this big or this big. If you're developed or not. Verse 2. We all stumble in many ways, James says. I'll give you that. No one's perfect. But anyone who's never at fault in what they say, they are perfect. That's how hard it is to control our speech. If my tongue is in check, my whole body will be in check. It takes great self-discipline to control my tongue. Have you ever noticed, I'm sure you parents have, the brutal transparency and honesty of some children? I mean, we've got children in our church, they'll just put it out there. They'll, just, they'll say it. They're not afraid. I get tickled when we ride home from church. Amy will say, you wouldn't believe so-and-so's prayer request today. This happened about three months ago. She said, Michael, you won't believe what she prayed asked me to pray for. I said, what? She said, Miss Amy, you need to pray for my mommy and daddy. They're at home goofing off. I had to come to church with my grandma. One little boy said, Miss Amy, will you pray for my daddy? He cusses a lot. See, I know all of your secrets. There's a big chart in my office that got your name and either a smiley face or a frowny face. It's been said that We spend the first two years of our child's lives trying to get him to speak. Then we spend the next 15 or 16 trying to get him to shut up and be quiet. (laughs) Psalm 17, verse 3, David wrote, I am resolved that my mouth will not sin. You know, you'd do yourself a favor if today you made a promise to yourself and a commitment to God to guard your speech. Let me tell you something. You husbands and wives, you would take giant strides toward intimacy. If at some point this afternoon, a husband looked at his wife and said, Honey, I love you, and I want you to know that I'm going to do my best to control how I speak to you. If a, if a family sat down tonight, use the program notes, have family night, and a father and a mother said, Look, here are the rules in this house. When we communicate, we're going to do so respectfully and lovingly. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 23 says, The mind of the wise makes their speech insightful. I love to listen to a wise person speak. I love it. Conversely, I don't have time to listen to a babbling fool. And neither do you. You see, if the brain is not engaged, then the tongue ought to remain disengaged. James recognizes, again, that we all stumble But we need to understand when we do speak, we reveal how grown up we really are. That's our maturity. Here's number two. Comes from verse five. Words reveal our desires. You want to know what somebody desires, wants to get out of life? Just listen to them talk. You watch a single parent as they push on, they drive, and they're juggling it all. They're overwhelmed even. What drives them? I can tell you how to find out. Just listen to them. It won't be long before you hear a mother or a single dad talk about their love for their children, the responsibility they feel as a parent. James gave us three examples of this principle. There's the bit in the horse's mouth. You're familiar with, with, with a bit, right? A bit is a piece of metal that goes in a horse's mouth, and there's a, there's a loop in the, there's a kind of a, a bump in the bit, and these bumps come in various severities, because the more the bump, the more you can control or cut off the oxygen to a horse, if you can control the oxygen to a horse, then you can control that 1,600-pound piece of swinging and meat, and that's incredible, all by controlling the tiny little thing. And then he gives the example of the rudder on a great ship, these massive ships that enter our port in Savannah, enormous structures, and they're guided by, relatively speaking, a very small rudder. Then the last one, a spark that burns down an entire forest. You control that spark, then you can control the fire. You can save the devastation of thousands of wooded acres. In fact, that's interesting to me. All three examples deal with avoiding possible harm. If you've ever been on a big animal and you can't control it like a horse, you're going to get hurt. A ship without a rudder is going to hit the rocks. And a spark... With no one to control, it could burn down a fire. Jesus said, on more than a few occasions, it's not what you put in your mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your mouth. In fact, Matthew 15, verse 11, here's what he said. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. It's what comes out of their mouth. That's what defiles them. What comes out reveals what's on the inside. And that's what makes us clean or unclean. My speech reveals my desires. Number three. My words reveal the influence of evil on my life. Again, that sounds kind of dramatic, I realize, in this day and age. James said in verse 8, Your tongue is full of deadly poison. It can start a fire. In fact, itself, the tongue itself is set on fire by hell, James said. Again, pretty dramatic. He's not exaggerating simply to make a point, he's stating the facts. Your speech will reveal the influence of evil on your life. Proverbs 16, verse 27. Solomon wrote, worthless people dig up trouble. How do they do that? With their speech, what they talk about, what they share. Their lips are like scorching fire. Now, you might be a person who says, well, come on, Mike. I mean, you know, we're not all the same. I'm just, uh, I got a problem in that area. I call it like I see it. James wouldn't call it a problem. James would call it a sin. James wouldn't say, oh, well, you've got a problem. We'll just laugh it off later. James would say, don't you realize the power of that seemingly insignificant muscle that's in your mouth? Here's number four. Words reveal the condition of my soul. Brothers and sisters, verse 10, this should not be. What should not be? Out of the same mouth comes praise for God and cursing. For others, created in his image. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. What I say reveals the condition of my soul. Followers of Jesus Christ ought to be the most positive, uplifting, encouraging people on the planet. In the Jewish Talmud, there's a story of a king and his two court jesters. You know what the Talmud is? Uh, The Jewish Talmud is a collection of rabbinical commentaries on the Old Testament. Much like commentaries in my office, only they're written by Jewish rabbis regarding the Old Testament. In the Talmud, there's a story of a king who called his two jesters, Simon and John. He said, foolish Simon, go into the countryside and find me the greatest thing in all the world. Foolish John, go out into the countryside, cross my kingdom and find me the worst thing in the world. The men set out. They were gone for weeks. A journey like this took a long time. Finally, they returned. They both came and bowed before the king. Foolish Simon, the king asked, what is the greatest thing in the world? He reached into his bag and he pulled out a tongue. The tongue is the greatest thing in the world, for with the tongue we give praise and adoration to our father. We give guidance and encouragement to our fellow man. Well done, foolish Simon. Foolish John, what is the worst thing in my kingdom? He reached into the bag and pulled out a tongue. The tongue spews hate and fire, bitterness and envy. Truly, the tongue is the worst thing in the world. Basically, today I've pointed out four ways of saying the same thing. What I say is connected to who I am. Now, the beauty of this principle is you can leverage it to your advantage. If what I say is a reflection of who I am, then what I also say or begin saying new can become who I become. You see? James says, watch what you say, because there's a connection between what you say and who you are. Any simple, cheap faucet that you can buy over the internet can turn the water on, right? But it takes a well-crafted, well-built, well-maintained faucet years later to be able to turn the water off, right? You ever have a leaky faucet in your house? Three o'clock in the morning, you're trying to sleep, drip, drip, drip. Good, very good sound effect. Your speech is the single most powerful influencer in your relationships. James wants us to take action because my words either build up or tear down my relationships. Here's what I'm hoping you'll leave here and do. I'm hoping that this week you'll have a conversation with someone you love about the words that come out of your mouth. I'm hoping that at some point during this week it will occur to you the importance of what you say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a beautifully, simple, and yet profound passage like James chapter 3. Father, a child can understand what we've read, but trying to employ or implement that principle in our lives is extremely difficult. Father, may this church and these people engage our brains before we engage our tongues. May this church and these people be some of the brightest, most encouraging, uplifting people in our community. Make it so, I pray, in the name of your risen Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you go make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.